everybody, and welcome back to Rounding the News. My name is Liam Sturgis, and I'm your host for this weekly news roundup brought to you by Rounding the Earth. Now, today's going to be very interesting. I've already been running into what are becoming very familiar and characteristic tech issues, and I'm hoping my computer will make it through today. But it's not just my computer. Substack is playing some very interesting games with my drafts. As you may know, I, I write out essentially my, my scripts for the show into Substack, which then become the show notes. And this is the second time that an earlier version of my draft gets swapped in, and then I lose part of what I wrote later. In any case, I think I was able to get most of it ready to go for you guys. So we're going to have an excellent show today. Now, the second thing is this week was just packed with stuff. I was involved in an investigation into something that was going to potentially be the subject of today's show, but I decided against it. Uh, it'll come up in a in a future discussion, probably. Uh, the main reason I didn't bring it up this time is it wasn't tied to a specific news item. But in any case, I've had a very busy week and some potentially very exciting things in development. Um, but we're going to cover a couple of really interesting things. Today's show is titled the fixer. Now I'm just going to very quickly go through, make sure that I am live on all of our various platforms. Um, looks like we're live on Rumble and Locals and Rockfin. So that is fantastic. Hello, Jen in the chat. All right. So the fixer. Now you'll find, I think what I found, which is there's sort of a through line that naturally emerges through our stories for today. And you'll see where this name comes from in a little bit. Now, first of all, just remember, if you're watching on Rumble, you can leave us a Rumble rant, which is a paid comment. In fact, please do if you want to support the show. 100% of proceeds from Rumble rants go directly to us, rounding the earth, for the rest of 2023. And if you give at least $5, you then receive a cool uh, supporter badge on Rumble, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if you're on Rockfin, you can also donate directly, and uh, same with Odyssey. But of course, the best way to support the show and become part of the community is quite literally to become part of our Rounding the Earth community on Locals. You can go to roundingtheearth.local.com. You can sign up for free to stay in the loop with everything we're doing in a nice organized news feed type thing. But if you want to become a paid supporter, you can then also contribute to the discussion yourself and join in with our weekly supporters exclusive live streams. Uh, this past week, uh, I had a very busy Wednesday, and so did Matthew. He uh, led a discussion on the, the topic of, is there a real Steve Kirsch? I'll say nothing more on the topic. I'll recommend that if you haven't yet become a supporter, go do so and watch this past week's supporters exclusive video. All right, so let's dive right in here. Today we have our first story is, is an interesting one. Tiffany Dover. Now, this is a name that I've heard many times over the last couple of years, and uh, I wasn't really paying attention at the time that this situation first occurred, but there's been some developments. Now, after over two years of silence, a Tennessee nurse named Tiffany Dover appears to have stepped back into the public eye. But instead of settling debate about her story, which we'll explain, her reappearance seems to have only muttered the water, uh, muttered, muddied the water further. So here's what happened. 
Dover was one of the first people to receive a COVID-19 genetic vaccine on live TV way back on December 17th, 2020. Now we're going to pull up the incident here and watch it together just so we understand what exactly we're talking about here. When you woke up this morning, did you know you were going to be receiving the vaccine? I did, yes. So, you know, all of my staff, um, we are excited to get the vaccine. You know, um, we are in the COVID unit, so therefore, you know, my team will be getting first chances to get the vaccine. And I know that um, it's really, insulin really dizzy. Oh, I'm sorry. So as you can see, she uh, she she passes out, um, and uh, I learned a little bit of the story that I wasn't yet familiar with. So, here, but here's what happened, as reported by USA Today, six days after the incident. We have this here <laughs> fact check: nurse who fainted after COVID nineteen vaccine has an underlying health condition. Last week, Tiffany Dover, a nurse manager from Catholic Health Initiatives. Memorial Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, fainted shortly after she received the COVID-19 vaccine shot. She was midway through a television interview when she passed out. Clips of the moment spread across the internet, some accompanied by claims that the reaction is proof the vaccine isn't safe. In reality, Dover has an underlying health condition that causes her to faint when she experiences pain for USA Today. So here's the part I hadn't seen before. After waking up, Dover sat down for a debrief with reporters. She explained that she had an underlying medical condition that predisposed her to fainting episodes. Now, I'm hoping this clip will load because I have it for us. Hmm. All right, well, we'll see if that loads. Um, in the meantime, I will go ahead and move on. So as explained by Jordan Shatchel in the dossier, after she was brought back to consciousness, a clearly shaken Dover told the media that she had that she regularly has an overactive vagal response. That's a, a I believe a nerve. Uh, half a dozen fainting spells, she said recently, and added that that was why she collapsed onto the ground after taking the shot. Man, I'd really like to watch this video if we can. Ah, anyway, in the video, she basically explains that. Then Dover disappeared from the public eye. Any suggestion that the experimental Pfizer-BioNTech product she had received moments before could have caused the incident were waved off and attacked as conspiracy theories, such as this article here. What scheme was used to virally spread false information about the death of an American nurse? But even so, objections to this explanation came almost immediately. Continuing from Satchel's article, I quote, the incident sparked endless speculation on social media, with many entertaining the possibility that Tiffany Dover was severely injured by the vaccine or even killed on the spot. This fast became a nightmare PR situation for both the medical center and the vaccine rollout campaign. On December 21st, 2020, four days after she got the shot, CHI Memorial 
continued its damage control operation by featuring Tiffany in a short video surrounded by her colleagues. Nurse leadership supports Tiffany, read one sign. We got the shot, says another. For reasons unknown, that video has been wiped from social media and the official accounts that posted it have since taken it down. So I recommend diving into Jordan's article, which will be in the show notes, which will be posted on roundingtheearth.local.com. Um, if you want to get the rest of the story as has led up to now. And so what's happened now is there's been a new NBC News exclusive that's come, that's come out apparently with Tiffany. And at first glance, I look at her and I don't think it looks like the same person, but it's been two and a half years. She's changed her hair color. And remember, in the first video, she had a mask on. So I, I'm no expert in whether or not this is that person. And so we will set aside the theories that the woman on screen is not, in fact, over. But even so, it remains suspicious that she was absent from the public eye for so long. And so it's not at all surprising that so many people became convinced she was either dead or incapacitated, with people still really insisting that that was the case to this day. Now, Viva Fry summarized on Twitter. Dover explains during the NBC interview that she initially wanted to speak out again to continue public discussion on what happened to her. But she was told that that absolutely would not happen because it would cause, quote, irrecoverable damages. Irrecoverable damages to who exactly? To Dover? To CHI Memorial Hospital? Or to Pfizer and BioNTech? Or the United States government bankrolling the massive vaccine rollout? So for further analysis and informed commentary on Dover's interview and the questions that remain unanswered, I recommend watching Viva's clip uh, from his recent live stream on the topic. Once again, this will be in the show notes. And Viva has also gone through a, I believe it's a five-part podcast series that precedes this particular interview where they attempted to dissuade these rumors, but Tiffany didn't really make an appearance there. In any case, Viva is very informed and, uh, and uh, a good... Uh, commentary to listen to on the topic. So I wish Tiffany Dover the best, and I hope it's true that she was not meaningfully harmed as many speculate. Okay, moving on to another very interesting topic. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, report blames paper size for Maricopa County 2022 election machine failures. So we've covered the uh, 2022 general election or the midterms uh, where Carrie Lake looked like she was going to win the governorship and then on election day, there was a a large uh, proportion of polling sites that ran into extreme difficulties tabulating ballots, and it wound up disenfranchising a bunch of voters, depending on who you ask. In any case, on Monday this week, April 10th, a report was released by the Maricopa County Board of Directors, summarizing an investigation into widespread ballot problems during the 2022 general election in Maricopa County, Arizona. Led by former Arizona Supreme Court Justice Ruth McGregor, the report concluded that equipment failure was to blame, rejecting the notion that human error or malicious intent were at play. Now, I took the time to read the 30-some page report, and I recommend you do so as well, even if just for interest on how these kind of things are done. So there are a couple points I want to highlight. 
So there were two different printers looked at, and there's some comments being made about, well, hold on a second. These really are kind of consumer level printers. And it's odd that government use, you know, governments were using these for elections. But regardless, um, the first thing is to understand, and this is sort of the point of rounding the news, right? We're rounding out the perspectives. We're not just taking one side of the argument over the other. And therefore, when we hear or when we examine a, a news story, we want to take the source and sort of round out what are the potential biases? What, what are the influences on this story that may uh, result in um, just a one-sided story? Um, so the sources of information for this investigation, which is being described as independent, were the documents, the manuals, the guidebooks uh, for the election workers on the day, which which is is good, and also interviews with the people who administered the election and interviews with the Maricopa County officials themselves. As you can see, although the focus of this investigation is narrowly centered on the performance of the ballot on demand or BOD printers in the 2022 general election, understanding all the factors that could have affected their performance required that we have a broad understanding of election procedures. To learn about the procedures followed in preparing and testing the BOD printers, we spoke on multiple occasions with Scott Jarrett co-director of elections for Maricopa County. We conducted in-person interviews with employees in charge of IT for the MCED Maricopa County electoral director, maybe, and the recorder's office, the department's vote center manager and head of the election day command center, tabulation manager, tabulation analyst lead, help desk supervisor, and the personnel in charge of printer preparation and testing. In other words, all people who some are accusing of being the problem. Moving on. Uh, I just want to point out that Carrie Lake dismissed the report blaming ballot paper used. And basically, we'll, we'll get to the specifics there. But Carrie Lake wasn't impressed by the report, dismissing it as a, a farce. Uh, these people don't think your vote or your opinion matters, and anyone who takes the results of this investigation seriously is part of the problem. And her point was, uh, Maricopa, Maricopa County released the results of their internal investigation and has shockingly found themselves not guilty of any crime. So that's sort of the point I'm making about what sourcing was done for this report. Now, this is what they found. So the first variable considered was the weight of the ballot paper. Prior to 2020, Maricopa County's ballots were printed on 110-pound paper. In 2020, Maricopa County purchased a new type of on-site tabulator that could use either 80-pound or 100-pound paper. So far, so good. Now, here's something interesting that my partner Sam pointed out. As a result of pandemic-induced supply issues, only 80-pound paper could be obtained in sufficient quantities for the March 17, 2020 presidential primary election. Now, hold the phone. March 17, 2020, and they're blaming pandemic-induced supply issues. The pandemic was officially declared by the WHO on March 11, 2020. I know here in Canada, it was about a week later that we had British Columbia, for example, the province that I live in, declare their own public health emergency. I'm not sure when this happened in Arizona. But if you're preparing for a March 17 election, 
presumably in the weeks or months beforehand, you would have ordered the paper. And the supply chain issues wouldn't have started by March 17, 2020. Meaning, what I mean is in the lead up to that period where they would have been purchasing the paper, how could there have been supply chain issues? I'm sure there is an answer to that question. But I found that, after Sam pointed it out, very interesting. Okay, here's the thing that I noticed. The PPE, presidential primary election, which involved a single race and a one-sided ballot, experienced no issues with the ballot-on-demand papers. During the 2020 general election, however, so this is now the one later on in the year, on some ballots, the ink from the Sharpie pens provided at the vote centers bled through the paper. Because voting bubbles are offset on the front, well, before I get there, there's a footnote. Footnote 19, Maricopa County preferred that voters use these pens, referring to the Sharpies, because the ink dries quickly, as opposed to ballpoint ink, which takes more time to dry and thus can transfer onto the tabulator and cause the tabulator to reject ballots because it reads the transferred ink and detects it as a fault. Now, I realize this has already been litigated in the court of public opinion, but this is the first time I've heard this argument myself that Sharpies, you know, the thick, inky, uh, bleedy, uh, large pens are the ones that dry quicker and don't transfer compared to your standard ballpoint pen? This is another logical issue that I have with with this report. I, I don't quite... On its face, it doesn't pass the smell test. Continuing on. Um, because voting bubbles are offset on the front and back of ballots, any bleed through cannot actually affect the correct tabulation of votes, and all votes can be counted even if bleed through occurs. So there's there's a couple different things there that's, that sort of contradict each other, but I went back and looked. What was this, this Sharpie Gate situation? And um, it, it, it looks as though th the point they're making is it does bleed through, and it doesn't matter if it does because they can be hand counted. They can be taken in a method that's in addition to the standard voting procedure and reduplic like duplicated into a new ballot that doesn't have the bleed through. And that is where some of the issues lie when, as we've discussed in previous shows, as Carrie Lake's election lawsuit is, is substantiated or is, is um, alleging, it is, in fact, the chain of custody of those ballots that are being counted separately from the main process where the concern lies. So you almost see a bit of a cleanup job here, a bit of a fixing of the narrative, a bit of a pointing away. Now, I went to look at what happened at the time. What happens if ink bleeds through a ballot in Arizona? According to the state's elections procedures manual, if a felt tip pen mark does bleed through, the ballot will likely get sent for duplication, as I said. An election worker will fill out a new ballot using the voters' choices that will be read properly by tabulation machines. Um, there you go. So that's what happened. I found it very interesting. I recommend reading through it as well because it gets you thinking about what does constitute election security? How does the, the minute details like what pen you use 
or the thickness of the paper or the length of the paper, which wound up being what they blame for this entire thing. How does that affect the outcome of our democratically held elections? Okay, now moving on. Um, I have just one question about this story, and then I'm going to move on. Here's, here's the headline. Pentagon leaks how the FBI tracked down and arrested Jack Texera, 21-year-old suspect in U.S. intel leak. It was a dramatic day for the rest of town of North Dighton in Massachusetts when FBI authorities arrested 21-year-old Jack Texera from his house. A member of the U.S. Air Force, he was reading a book on his patio as agents swooped in to nab him for leaking highly classified documents. Here's my one question. Have you seen the documents? Moving on. Okay, this is our main story for the day. And this, my friends, is an evolving story. Titled, Who is Nima Momeni? So last Friday, one week ago, I covered the tragic, fatal stabbing of tech executive Bob Lee in San Francisco, California. It was unclear at the time who had conducted the attack and what, what the motive could have been, and authorities seemed suspiciously coy about revealing any details on what leads they may have been chasing down. But yesterday, an arrest was made. Police have officially accused Nima Momeni of murdering Bob Lee. It is particularly notable that the 38-year-old Mameni is also a tech entrepreneur, which was sort of what my suspicions were leaning towards. Whoever this, whoever the killer wound up being, I thought maybe this would be the realm they came from. And according to police, the attack was neither a mugging nor a random act of violence. It only seems right to follow up my previous report in which we dove into who Bob Lee was, uh, it seems right I do the same now for my many. After all, I am very curious as to what led police to identify him as the killer, and I would love to see if the official story stands up to the smell test, the smell test scrutiny. Now, keep in mind, I'm not the police. I don't have access to their materials, and I'm not conducting the investigation. So I'm not claiming any special insight, and I'm not claiming I know better than anyone who's actually working on this case. I just want to be clear. But again, rounding the news as informed non-TV watchers, how do we process this news? Because in the end, this that is what this is. When, when articles are put out, we are the target audience. We're the ones who are, are supposed to be processing it one way or the other. So let's take control of how we process it. So what do we know about Nima Momeni? Well, his LinkedIn page was last up. Uh, was was up last time I checked, and I discovered that while the Wayback Machine does not archive LinkedIn, archive.today does. So that was a fun little thing to learn. Now, according to Mameni's LinkedIn page, he attended the University of California, Berkeley. Strangely, according to university spokesperson Dan Moguloff, there exists no record of his attendance or graduation from the school. Okay. That's odd. Keep in mind, the same thing happened with Rishi Sunak from Stanford, as far as I remember. Stanford? Anyway, he also lists Laney College and Vista College. 
Now, Laney College is a public community college in Oakland, California. So that, that checks out. Vista College, on the other hand, is very interesting. Having been founded in 2006 by a former McKinsey & Co. employee, then suddenly going bankrupt and shutting down in late 2021. I went down a bit of a side rabbit hole yesterday where I discovered that uh, the debt of all of these students had been purchased by a group called uh, the Debt Collective, which is funded by all sorts of fun people. Um, but it, it's a group that contests, uh, they want to eliminate debt for everybody. Anyway, that's not the scope of our discussion today. But I thought this was very interesting. So presumably, though, Mameni would have graduated long before this occurred. So Mameni's career, because this is what we did with Bob Lee. We went through, we saw everything he did, and we found he had a tremendously interesting career with impact on all of our lives, okay? But Mameni, not, not so much. So we've got from 2005 all the way to uh, August 2013 in this little section, uh, uh, he worked at Marfic Technologies from 2005 to 2007 as a system slash network engineer. He then worked at Coast Range Technologies as an IT administrator slash consultant from 2006 to 2012. He then also worked at, uh, as a consultant at a few other uh, a few other firms, Diablo IT, Spock, uh, which I believe is Single Point of Contact, uh, and that was from August 2007. August 2013. He subcontracted Bay Area clients from other IT providers and provided full IT support, project management, handled all day-to-day -day IT operations and activities at the respective local and or remote client sites. So he seems fairly proficient at what he does. All right. Then on March 17th, 2010, Momeni Incorporated Expand Information Technology under the corporate title of Expand IT Services, LLC. Through his company, Mameni claims to have led a group of local expert enterprise IT professionals dedicated to providing solid, reliable, and efficient technology solutions and cost-effective support services. I was able to find uh, this Better Business Bureau uh, profile for the company. Uh, I found it, it, I found what appeared to substantiate this is you know real company. They had real clients, as far as I can tell. Um, but that's that's it. That's basically all this guy's LinkedIn page has to offer. Except for this little tidbit. This is a screenshot of about this profile. You'll see he joined in 2010. His contact information was updated over one year ago. But his profile photo was updated less than one week ago. So if the murder took place on April 4th and he was arrested on April 13th, yesterday, that means his profile photo was updated in the interim after he allegedly committed the murder and before he was arrested. In other words, before everybody started seeking out his profile. Now, unfortunately, even though I've discovered archive.today does archive LinkedIn pages, can't find any archives that exist prior to this change. So I can't see what it used to look like. Very interesting. This is where the plot begins to thicken for me. So, as the news broke yesterday of Momeni's arrest, 
Eager readers such as myself seeking to learn more about his business by visiting its website were greeted by this error message. This site is currently unavailable. Now, rather than having been scrubbed based on the error messages I was getting from the Wayback Machine plugin that I have on my computer, it appears that the website simply experienced a traffic overload and could not handle the traffic, much like what happens as a result of a directed denial of service attack, or DDoS. But luckily, the Wayback Machine was on my side here, and I was able to go back to a snapshot of the website from November 2011, just over a year after his company was founded. And I was able to locate on the About page of this old website, this bio for Mameni. Founder Nina Mameni has been in the IT industry since 1999. He has extensive experience managing and implementing network systems and infrastructure. He has developed and implemented systems throughout the world in a variety of industries and possesses in deep knowledge, oh sorry, in-depth knowledge of core business processes, software and system implementations. Through his tenure with several venture capital startups and IT service companies, he has gained valuable knowledge about predictable, flexible, and cost-effective IT operations. Huh. Based on this paragraph from 2011, it seems there is a good six years of professional experience not accounted for on Mameni's LinkedIn profile. Remember, we only have from 2005 onwards. Now, Again, my partner Sam pointed out, well, that may include his time in university. And I pointed out, well, it specifically says extensive experience in the IT industry since 1999, which to me suggests, also when you consider his age, 38, that this refers to his initial, his, his first jobs, perhaps. And also striking about, speaking of first jobs, is the mention of his tenure with several venture capital startups, which are entirely absent from his page. There's no mention of venture capital. Now, keep in mind, if indeed Mameni has a relationship or a history with venture capital firms, well, that would be a very obvious way in which Mameni and Bob Lee would intersect, because Bob Lee was a partner at several venture capital firms. It's, it's not a given that venture capital and IT combine. So there's something strange missing here. But the strangest thing, or rather the most interesting thing that caught my eye at the end here was some of the reporting, what his neighbors were saying. So this is being shown as the building where Mameni had a live-work setup. And his neighbors in this building were approached. Uh, they were interviewed by the media following his arrest. One, anonymously, alleged that Mameni had come to his door the night of the incident, the night of the murder, asking for alcohol. A second neighbor, Chris Donatiello, expressed shock at the arrest and described Mameni as a super nice guy. To Chris, it seemed out of nowhere, it didn't add up necessarily. He wasn't expecting that Mameni would be someone who would be accused of such a crime. Okay, now a third neighbor was a gentleman named Sam Singer, who recently opened an office for his 
public relations firm in the same building as Mameni's live workspace. Reading the title here, Emeryville neighbors of Nima Mameni, suspect in Bob Lee murder express shock after his arrest. Well-known Bay Area public relations veteran, Sam Singer, never expected he would work next door to Mameni, accused in Lee's killing. Total shock, Singer told CBS News Bay Area. I'm in the public relations business. We don't normally work next to killers. Singer says he never had a poor encounter with Mameni beyond hearing music a bit too loudly. Side note, I confirmed that he, uh, Mameni, moonlights as a DJ, and I found his SoundCloud profile. That'll be in the show notes. Warm, welcoming, very nice fellow, like any other tech consultant here in the Bay Area, lives in a live-work space, Singer said. He handed us a stack of cards and said, if you ever need anything, let me know. But Sam Singer, this is not nobody. It's, in fact, rather convenient that Sam Singer was present at the scene of this, you know, narratively, it's a promising follow-up to such an upsetting story. They got the guy. According to his website, Singer Associates, which literally just opened a, a, a location in the same building as Mameni, according to the website, Sam Singer is one of the nation's leading communication strategist, even earning titles such as The Fixer, The Top Gun for Hire, and one of the most powerful people in the San Francisco Bay Area. Due to his ability to impact the news for his agency's clients. Impact the news. I quote, Mr. Singer is nationally known for handling some of the most significant public affairs, corporate communications, and crisis communications campaigns. Clients include Fortune 500 companies and well-regarded corporations, including Chevron, San Francisco 49ers, Lenar, Stanford University, Levi Strauss & Co., The Gap, Visa International, MBIA, Ford Motor Co., Airbnb, Disney, Warner Brothers, EA Sports, San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Examiner, Bay Area Rapid Transit District, or BART, and other prominent corporations, nonprofits, political issues, and elected leaders. To be very specific here, Singer's Associates Clients List includes a number of entities directly involved in the Bob Lee incident. For example, the San Francisco General Hospital, the facility where Lee was brought before being pronounced dead. You've got the San Francisco Chronicle, the largest newspaper in the city, and a significant media outlet covering the story. And finally, of course, the San Francisco Examiner, another outlet in San Francisco also covering the story. So if this man's job, if, if he is one of the nation's top fixers for stories, impacting the news in his own words for his firm's clients, and his firm's clients 
are so directly involved in this high-profile story, I'm not drawing conclusions. But it seems interesting that someone named The Fixer just so happens to have just moved in beside this guy. Coincidence? Frankly, this story is moving so fast, I don't really know what my conclusions are because... Oh, Will Edmonston asked, so this guy was allegedly his neighbor. Yes. So I believe the building he was in, let's pull this up again. The building he's in, and and by the way, there's some Google Street View confusion about where this address actually was. And I'm going to look into this further. But this is the building in question, apparently. And so as you see, it's a it's a corporate looking building. So Mameni was in a live workspace there. So an office where he also worked. Kind of fun. Sort of my style. Doing this from my bedroom. And in this same building, Sam Singer just opened up uh, like something like the fifth or sixth location for his crisis communications business. So that that's that. But look, the story continues to evolve. Okay. Mameni was scheduled for his first court appearance today. And I thought it would be wise for me to go and just double check and see if there are any last minute changes to the story. And indeed, tech exec appears in court charged with knifing to death Cash app founder Bob Lee, as his sister, who introduced the pair, shows up in support with her famous plastic surgeon husband. Except that's not even the right headline because it's been postponed. It was postponed. There was no hearing today, as far as I know. But who is this famous plastic plastic surgeon husband? Um, he was joy glamorous sister Kazar, who had. So there's more to look into, is what I'm saying. This story broke yesterday, so I'm afraid I can't leave you with much of a conclusion other than to say. Isn't it interesting that there are these, instead of one singular narrative throughout, like we had with Bob Lee, which was fairly easy to follow, why is it that there's these, these strange coincidences or strange things that aren't available for us to go and check and verify? Um, like I said, not drawing conclusions, but I hope this has been a good exercise for all of us in examining sources, in looking at where some of the people impacting the news may be. And if indeed, in all of these stories, the question is, do we see the impact of a fixer? Do we see someone in the Tiffany Dover story coming in to round out the story there? Do we have someone in the Arizona election story coming in to Make sure the story goes the way they need. Do we have something like that in this very, very strange Pentagon leak story? And do we have something like that here with Nina Mameni? I'll leave it to you guys to decide. In the meantime, thank you so much for watching. As I've said, the show notes will be posted as I finish them up after uh, within a couple of hours onto roundingtheearth.locals.com. Um, there should be even more uh, fun links and resources as I uh, seek to round out my arguments and become a member, become a paid supporter if you want to join in on our weekly supporters only live streams. And what you can do, of course, is still go to the OG roundingtheearth.substack.com where Matthew continues to publish excellent uh, commentary and discussions around many aspects of this very interesting time period we're living in. 
You can find me at liamsturgis.com. And if you want, find me on Clubhouse because I'm going to be joining in uh, a music production room uh, with my friend Futch. And uh, if you're not familiar with Clubhouse, it's an app that, believe it or not, Bob Lee invested in. So go find that and come see in uh, just over two hours. Come find me on there. And in the meantime, thank you all so much for watching. I have been Liam Sturgis. You have been you. And I will see you on Monday or Tuesday next week. Have an excellent weekend. <laughs>